Good morning and welcome. I'm Mark Schladorn and I'm an elder here at Cross Point Coast along with Matt Hardy who you uh, met in the prayer confession and Joel Fair and Pastor Jeremiah Fife, who's been on sabbatical this summer, but he's here today and um, he'll be back up here preaching in just a few weeks. Um, today we're going to be looking, as you just heard, in Psalm 139. Um, because this week marks the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing, I've spent much of the past few nights watching documentaries about the space race. There are a handful of us here this morning who can actually remember where we were and what we were doing when Neil Armstrong stepped on the lunar surface. I grew up absolutely enthralled with America's astronauts. In fact, I have a suitcase, a literal suitcase, packed with moon maps, posters, trading cards, all kinds of space memorabilia, on a, on a shelf in my closet. And I plan to take that out this week to commemorate and kind of look through and at all the stuff and things that I was thinking back then. Um, but I have to confess, after watching the documentaries this week, I felt a little sad because the documentaries showed me flaws of my childhood heroes. My childhood heroes were exposed. Most of them were not the paragons of virtue that I was led to believe they were back then. They were flawed human beings. Back then, the media covering the space program created a kind of mythology. And I believe that mythology is fact because I knew only part of the story. Likewise, most of us harbor a preference for certain attributes of God. Some of us prefer to view God only as long-suffering, gracious, and merciful, and loving, because that's how we want God to treat us. Others prefer the holy, just, righteous, and sin-pursuing God, because that's how we want God to treat others. So unless we know all of God, all of his objectively real person, then we end up trying to use God to place him in service to us rather than us being in service to him. A.W. Tozer says, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. To put it another way, how well do you know the God who knows you so well? Today, as we explore Psalm 139, we find David wrestling with knowing all of God as he has revealed himself to us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it reveals your divine and glorious nature. We ask you to focus our hearts and minds this morning as we read through this psalm that instructs us not only regarding your unlimited power and presence, but also our need for your abiding presence. Father, we ask you that you would call us into a deeper and more intimate relationship with you, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that your spirit would be upon us this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Now, the Psalms are actually sacred songs, hymns written by God-inspired songwriter poets. The most prolific among them is David. He crafted 73 of the 150 
Psalms we find in our Bibles. In Psalm 139, we find that Israelite king thinking about a holy God and his standing before that God. In fact, this psalm functions a lot like our weekly corporate prayer of confession, during which, as you just heard, we confess two things, who God is in his holiness and righteousness and who we are in our brokenness. Psalm 139 will help us understand how we, in spite of our ongoing sin, can be reconciled and embraced by our loving Heavenly Father. How we can invite Him to search us and know our hearts. Now, one of the commentators I looked at this week points out that this, in this psalm, David finds God to be first a radical threat, followed by an inescapable reality, And finally, arriving at the conclusion that God is a transforming delight, a radical threat, an inescapable reality, and a transforming delight. In this psalm, David doesn't just give us information about God. He also tells us how he feels about that information, how his heart reacts. So as we look at the first verse, David opens with a sobering statement Directed toward God. O Lord, you have searched me and have known me. Now put yourself in David's place for a moment and let that sink in. O Lord, you have already searched me and known me. Here, David doesn't mean God has gathered a great deal of information about him, but rather that God has intimate knowledge of him. In fact, in Genesis, we find the same Hebrew word for know used to describe physical intimacy. It says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. God's knowledge of of David is intimate, personal, and absolutely thorough. Now, because that statement ends with an exclamation point, you might think David is rejoicing in an idea, but notice what comes next. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. In poetry, a merism is a figure of speech, a combination of two contrasting words that refer to an entirety. For example, in order to say that someone has searched everywhere, you probably have heard the expression that that someone has searched high and low. In writing that you know when I sit down and when I rise up, David is recognizing that God knows his every move. From sitting to standing and every place in between, no matter what David is doing, God sees his activity. And if that's not unsettling enough, David goes on to write, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. God observes, notices, picks out David's every thought all the time. From the time David awakes in the morning and even to when he's lying down to go to sleep at night, God knows what's on his mind and in his heart. There is no thought David has that God does not know. There's no word that David speaks that God does not know in advance that David is going to speak. David says God has complete, altogether knowledge of him. God has infinite knowledge of everyone in everything. That infinite knowledge also is intimate knowledge. 
and it's inescapable, and such knowledge is terrifying because it's threatening. Uh, let's look at it another way. What if someone had complete access to your thoughts and your words and your actions since you woke up this morning? Think about that for a minute. Now, being that today is Sunday and you all jumped out of bed anticipating joyously joining your fellow believers at what we at Crosspoint call a celebration service, I'm sure that not one of you would object to having your words and actions posted on social media, right? No one would object to that. But just for good measure, let's throw in all of your thoughts as well. Everything that's crossed your mind since you woke up this morning. Now we're getting closer to the level of knowledge the psalmist says God has regarding each and every one of us. Let that sink in. And you're worried about how much Google and Facebook know about you. We might consider God's level of knowledge of us an invasion of privacy. Some might call it demeaning, degrading. It feels dehumanizing. The point is none of us wants to be exposed like that. We can't bear it. Yet David is saying that God is inescapably all-knowing. So much so that he knows what David is going to say even before David does, and he knows it all together. Now, I suspect that I'm not the only one here who in a moment of annoyance, anger, aggravation, hasn't let loose with something that I didn't even know was in me. Like, whoa, where did that come from? God is, David is saying God knows everything about you, even things you don't know about yourself. So it shouldn't surprise us in verse 5 that we find David resisting that realization. When he writes, you hem me in, behind and before, you lay your hand upon me. Now David is not a tailor. He's a king and presumably he has people who handle his wardrobe. So he's not talking about hems and garments. David's a warrior, and these words have almost a military feel about them. The definition of him here means to surround and restrict the space or movement. David is balking at what he perceives to be restriction on his personal freedom. Because of God's total knowledge of me, he has too much control over me. This view of God leaves little room for, well, me. The sense here is that God is imposing himself on David. David recognizes that if God is all-knowing, then he, David, has a problem. A problem that feels unbearable. And he reveals his apprehension in verse 6, where he writes, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. Now, coming from our 21st century cultural Western perspective, Western cultural perspective, we take the word wonderful to mean inspiring delight and pleasure and admiration. But David has something else in view here. For him, wonderful means reverential fear, awe-inspiring, mind-boggling. It's kind of like back in the 80s, 90s, people used the word awesome. It's awesome to describe, I don't know, a hot dog. Hot dogs aren't awesome. The word awe is reverential. 
And that's what we kind of do with the word wonderful. Returning to military terms, David is saying God's knowledge of him is high. It's a summit. It's a fortress wall that cannot be scaled. It cannot be attained. God's knowledge is overwhelming. It's too much. Here's what Tozer writes about God's omniscience. God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality, all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and in earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven, and hell. Because God knows these things perfectly, he knows no thing better than any other thing, but all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He's never surprised, never amazed. He never wonders about anything or except when drawing men out for their own good, Does he seek information or ask questions? Let's sink in for a moment. Try to wrap your mind around that because that's what David is trying to do. And once David does wrap his mind around that angst-producing wonder, he can think of but only one way to deal with God. Run and hide. We find in verses 7 through 12 that God is infinite in his presence. In verse 7, David seems to confirm the reading of the previous verses because David's reaction to this all-knowing God is, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? How can I flee from God's scrutiny? His natural impulse is to flee holiness. Isaiah had a similar response when he encountered God when he exclaimed, whoa, I am undone. Such a God is too wild, too threatening, too terrifying. Similarly, after God spoke the words of the Ten Commandments, the law revealing the children of Israel's sinful transgressions against him, this was their response. Now, when the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood afar off and said to Moses, you speak to us. And we will listen, but don't let God speak to us, lest we die. The impulse to flee from God's face is as old as the fall, when Adam and Eve sought to hide from God after rebelling in open disobedience. It's our natural inclination. Likewise, when David ponders this high view of a holy God, he immediately begins to consider his escape options. And the first of those options feels a bit extreme. He writes, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. For David, Sheol was literally the place of the dead. The Greeks called this place Hades or hell. So even in death, regardless of his afterlife destination, David can expect to encounter God. Wait a minute, how can God be present in hell? Verses 7 and 8 clearly underscore that God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. R.C. Sproul writes that to be separated from the Lord and cast into hell doesn't mean that a person will finally be free of God. 
that person will remain eternally accountable to him. He will remain Lord over the person's existence. But in hell, a person will be forever separated from God in his kindness, mercy, grace, and goodness. He will be consigned to deal with him in his holy wrath. There's clearly no vertical escape. So David then begins to consider his horizontal evacuation routes. He writes, if I take wings of the morning... If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall find me, and your right hand shall hold me. In David's context, the Mediterranean Sea was the western edge of the known world. It's as far as you could go. So he's saying that there's no relief in the farthest eastern edge of the world where the sun rises, nor in the farthest west where the sea is the end of the earth. No place he can go to be concealed, no matter where he tries to hide. He can't escape God. Up, down, side to side, there's no out. David, like his earliest ancestors, discovers not only is God all-knowing, he's also everywhere and at all times. He's omnipresent. David simply can't get away. This is what it looks like for God to know everything about us and have unlimited access to every part of us. He sees who we really are. He has unfiltered access to our envy, pettiness, duplicity, hypocrisy, lust, greed, malice, those things we seek to keep hidden. To be seen at that level of intimacy is utterly terrifying because we know deep down something is desperately wrong with us. That's why we work so hard to keep those parts of us hidden. And we hide our true selves by working too hard, working on our appearance, avoiding commitments. The list goes on and on. There seemingly is no end to our efforts to cloak our true selves. As creator of all things and all life, God maintains complete authority over his creation. And that includes David, that includes you and me. And, there is, and it is here we begin to see David's shift a bit in his apprehension. He writes, for you formed, me, you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. And when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed in me, as when yet there were none of them. Now, David's not boasting. God, you made me so cool. That's not what he's saying. He's considering that even before he was... From the moment of of his conception, even before that, God knew his frame, his inward parts, his psyche. says he knew his unformed substance. The Hebrew word here is the same word that they use for embryo. God knew his embryo. And if that weren't enough, God has numbered every one of David's days. It's as if God keeps a handwritten biography on each one of us. And as we recently studied in Acts, in him we live and move and have our being. Before we existed, 
God already has written our stories. God is not only all-knowing and ever-present, we find here that he is also all-powerful and in absolute control of every molecule in his creation. Here we also find a description of God as artist. He didn't just create a body with skeleton muscles and brain. He's not just a STEM god, to use educational parlance. For science, engineering, science, technology, engineering, and math. He didn't just create body with a skeleton, muscles, and a brain. He didn't just create a structure. He created a person. Filling that architecture with feelings, talents, personality. He created us so much more than the sum of our parts. Now, as we've read, David begins this psalm with alarm. God knows everything about me. I cannot escape him. He has absolutely power over me, his creation. Why does this reality seem so distasteful to David and to us? Well, it's because we know if we had unfettered access to someone the way God has to us, we would exploit that person. Such unfettered access would give us soul-crushing power over that person. But wait, David realizes there's more to it than that. David has an epiphany. God doesn't operate the way we do. He doesn't think the way we do, and he doesn't respond the way we do. David already has pondered the bad news of the gospel, but now he begins to realize the gospel's good news. It's here where he has a breakthrough, where he sees that God can be a transforming delight. He writes, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Commentator Derek Kidner has this to say regarding David's shift in attitude. David has moved from contemplating his own thoughts and their nakedness before God to considering God's innumerable thoughts Toward him. He's not exaggerating, even in his own body. There is an unimaginable wealth of detail, every point of it from the mind of God. Such divine knowledge is not only wonderful, but precious. It carries its own proof of infinite commitment. God will not leave the work of his own hands, neither to chance or to ultimate extinction. David calls God's thoughts toward him precious. And that's a word that, like awesome, has been kind of stripped as it's, of its true significance in our culture. Many of us now think of that word as saccharine and sentimental. Isn't that just precious? But precious actually describes something of great value. Something not to be wasted or treated carelessly. Something valuable, costly, expensive, high-priced, dear. That word is used to describe how God regards David. How precious are your thoughts of me? Not only are God's thoughts toward his own precious, but God's thoughts are also innumerable, David tells us. What David has described here sounds a lot like the work of the gospel. We must first recognize the bad news of the gospel before we can embrace the good news. David has discovered a seeming paradox. Here's what I mean. David begins with a feeling of God's unrelenting, unnerving gaze, and all he can think to do in his sinful state is to flee from that gaze. 
because that, re- that gaze reveals his inmost essence. You have searched me and known me. He can't stand the exposure. Let's return for a moment to our social media exercise. What is it that we post on social media? Our flaws, our insecurities, our failures, our secret sins? No, never. We post celebrations of accomplishments, confident moments, family pictures, boasts of adventures, and of course, kittens. We post a lot of kittens. We post a highly filtered portrait of ourselves. It's you, only better. Why do we operate this way? Because we want people to know us and affirm us. In his book, Selfie, How We Became So Obsessed and What It's Doing to Us, Will Storr writes, we are living in an age of perfectionism, and perfection is the idea that kills. Whether it's social media or pressure to be impossibly perfect, 21st century iterations of ourselves, or pressure to have the perfect body, or pressure to be successful in our careers, or any of the myriad ways in which we place overly high expectations on ourselves and on other people, we're creating a psychological environment that's toxic. After posting, we anxiously await for our audience to like our posts, and we tally up all those likes because they're affirming. That's why on social media, everyone else's life appears to be more fulfilled than yours. How many likes would we garner if we posted an unfiltered, deep reveal of our true hearts? Even those who thrive on being mean in the Twitterverse, I teach teenagers, that's how I know all that stuff, could not stand the scrutiny of what would follow. So instead, we pretend and we perform, hoping those around us will love us and affirm us. And to make matters worse, we find ourselves looking at others and judging ourselves superior to them. That knife cuts both ways. David's initial fear of having his rebellious heart exposed starts to melt away when he begins to realize a larger view of God. David spends the first 19 verses of, of this psalm meditating on God's attributes. The final five verses represent his response to that meditation. One commentator suggests that verse 19 is where David moves from reverie to resolve. And David's resolve is to commit himself to holiness. Now, verses 19 through 22 can seem strange and out of place, especially in light of how David has just described God's disposition toward him. Here's what he writes. It might feel a little jarring. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred I count them my enemies. Wait, what? At first glance, this doesn't seem like a proper response to God's revealed kindness toward David. I mean, David moves immediately from precious thoughts to slaying the wicked. How do we make sense of this? Especially when we're called to love others as ourselves. How does that make sense? 
I mentioned earlier that unless we know all of God as he is revealed in Scripture, then we actually have created a God of our own imagination so that we might put him in our service instead of the other way around. Our culture prefers a God who is long-suffering, gracious, merciful, and loving because that's how we want God to treat us. We want to chill God. A few generations ago when I was growing up, before there was fire, the most cited verse in our culture was John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Everybody knew that verse. People who had never been in a church knew that verse. As a standalone, John 3.16 tells us first and foremost that God loves the world. And if we take it out of context, we can do some damage with that verse. But the prevailing emphasis in biblical times can be gleaned from placing John 3.16 in context with the verses that follow it. Here are the two verses that follow. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Do you hear the word condemned in there three times? People in biblical times, they got the wrath of God. They got the condemnation of God. John 3.16 was the corrective to that. In my generation, we flipped it. And particularly the Pharisees of Jesus' time preferred the holy, just, righteous, and sin-punishing God because they thought that's how God should treat other people. After all, he chose us, therefore they are inferior. God hates them. Jesus called them out all the time about that. Both views represent a flawed and incomplete grasp of the fullness of God's holiness if God is a God of salvation, then we clearly need to be rescued from something, sin and rebellion. I've had somebody say to me once, what do I need to be saved from? You keep talking about saved. I don't understand. Well, there needs to be context. We need to be rescued from sin and rebellion. A holy God must judge sin. He must put down the rebellion in his kingdom the appointed time for that to happen is called, throughout Scripture, the day of the Lord. But God's judgment bears little resemblance to ours. Perhaps R.C. Sproul can help us figure this out a little bit. He writes, if there is such a thing as perfect hatred, it would mirror and reflect the righteousness of God. It would be perfect to the extent that it excluded sinful attitudes of malice, envy, bitterness, and other attitudes we normally associate with human hatred. In this sense, a perfect hatred would be deemed compatible with a love for one's enemies. One who hates his enemy with a perfect hatred is still called to act in a loving and righteous manner toward him. This is where David has landed. First, notice specifically who David is cursing in these verses, 19 through 22. Wicked men of blood. David's appealing to the holiness, justice, and righteousness of God. Now, in this country, we live in a society of relative injustice and relative harm. It's not how it is in most of the rest of the world. It's off the chain. 
And it certainly wasn't the case in, in the world in biblical times. In his book, The Insanity of God, missionary Nick Ripkin describes Somalia as a place where systematic rape, murder, and starvation are common. You might remember in the 90s, the UN sending in peacekeeping forces there to try to fix that. But what you don't remember is the UN peacekeeping forces kind of just snuck out of town when they realized they couldn't fix that. When reading about such atrocities, one can help not help but call upon God to judge these wicked men of blood. It would be wrong to think otherwise. Charles Spurgeon provides some further understanding of these verses. He writes, to love all men with benevolence is our duty. But to love any wicked man with complacency would be a crime. To hate a man for his own sake or for any evil done to us would be wrong But to hate a man because he is the foe of all goodness and the enemy of all righteousness is nothing more or less than an obligation. The more we love God, the more indignant shall we grow with those who refuse him their affection. David cries out for divine justice. And immediately following this dramatic pronouncement against God's enemies, David sees his own heart. In context of the wickedness he abhors, he immediately says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Do away with injustice and bloodthirstiness, God, but begin with me. David recognizes the own depravity of his heart, the depravity of his own heart when confronted with the infinite person of God, we have to respond. David has experienced the convicting eye of God. It's a troubling, disturbing reality. It's overwhelming, too much, unbearable, and leads to his desire to escape. But again, there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. We, like David, can't stand to be searched and known. We instead feel the need to run away and hide, and yet... By the end of this psalm, David actually invites God to search him and know him. How can this be? What happened? Well, we can find the answer in the gospel. When we, like David, understand the reality of an all-knowing, ever-present, all-powerful God, a God who is righteous and holy, we can't stand to be in his presence. Before disobeying God, Adam and Eve basked in perfect harmony and communion with him. Just think about that for a minute. What would it be like to be in perfect harmony and communion with God? It's unfathomable. But that's where they were. They were fully known by him. And they relished that. But afterwards, after they disobeyed God, they hid from him and sowed fig leaves in an attempt to cover up their nakedness. And it wasn't just their physical nakedness that they were attempting to cover. They were attempting to cover the shame that resulted from their brokenness, their sin, being revealed before a holy God. And that sin puts us in the same place of conflict. Pastor John Lynn puts it this way. The only way we will ever be fully loved and affirmed is if we are searched and known. 
yet being fully searched and fully and known may be the exact thing that keeps us from being truly loved. Let me say that again. The only way we will ever be fully loved and affirmed is if we are searched and known, yet being fully searched and known may, may be the exact thing that keeps us from being truly loved. In Mark 15, we read that nearly 500 years after David, when Jesus was on the cross, the land was consumed in darkness for three hours, from noon until 3 p.m. The sun, moon, and stars appeared extinguished. Jesus was covered in darkness. On the cross, the lights went out. Later in Revelation 21, we read of a future creation of a new Jerusalem, the day of the Lord, where there's no sun or moon. That passage says, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine out, for the glory of God gives it, gives it light. Its lamp is the Lamb. That's Jesus. There's no sun or moon because Jesus is the light. Len further renders this beautiful idea. This, 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 he says it better than I can, so I'm going to quote him. But for Jesus on the cross, all David can say is verse 11 of Psalm 139. That's where he's hidden in the darkness or attempting to. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus is lost to the darkness. Jesus loses the light of his father's approval. So you can receive the light of the father's approval, even in your darkness. On the cross, Jesus is utterly exposed, naked, laid bare, ashamed. People walked by, they laughed, they jeered, they yawned. Even worse, his father hid him in darkness so that you never need be ashamed. So that he could shine the light of his approval on you. So that even when he looks into the depths of your heart, he can delight in you. God can fully know you. He can fully know all that stuff you don't want anybody else to know and still land on delighting in you. By Christ's death and resurrection, he made it possible for us to enter into an intimate relationship with God. Jesus fully exposed himself to the world so that we might welcome instead of revile being fully exposed to God. In light of the cross, here's what changes. In light of the cross, God's inescapable knowledge of me becomes, he knows me. God's inescapable presence becomes, he's with me. And God's inescapable power becomes, he's for me. He knows me, he's with me, he's for me. It's the same God. It's the same God that David was so fearful of at the beginning of this psalm that he arrives at a fuller knowledge of at the end. The gospel turns our dread upside down. Instead of trying to hide in the darkness, we can know there is no place too dark for God to see. Instead of trying to run away from God, we can know there is no place too deep for God to go. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Instead of trying to hide our sin in our sin and shame, we can know there is no situation. There's nothing you have done that's beyond God's delight. 
As a result, we, like David, can move from collapsing under the scrutiny of God's unnerving stare to inviting God to examine us fully. Like David, we can move deeper still into an intimate relationship with our Creator, knowing that because of Jesus, our Father in heaven doesn't condemn those of us who are in Him, but instead rejoices over us and walks with us. The prophet Isaiah writes, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with singing. And that's not all. And that's not all. Remember the turning point for David in this psalm. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. I am still with you. Likewise, Christ's disposition to those he has saved is not only is beyond measure, it's also ongoing. In Matthew 28, we find these comforting last words from Jesus to his disciples, to his disciples before he descended to heaven. What did he say? He said, and behold, I am with you always. I am with you always to the end of the age. As we examine the character of God, the gospel's essence, both its good news and bad news, is revealed. Without Jesus, our natural impulse when encountering a God who must judge sin is to flee his presence but clearly we can't. Only through Christ's sacrifice and resurrection, the gospel's good news, can we actually invite God to search me, O God, and know my heart, to try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. How well do you know the God who knows you so well? Heavenly Father, We thank you for your revelation of yourself through the Holy Scriptures. We thank you for this witness, this testimony of David. We thank you that in the Psalms we find men and women just like us, flawed, sinful, broken people who are wrestling with a knowledge of who you are and are standing before you, a holy God. Thank you that in the person of Jesus you have provided a way to be reconciled to you. Jesus, we thank you. In your name we pray these things. Amen.